Hello everyone and welcome to the November 4th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, a partner with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal reviewed and partially reversed an injured worker's FIHA award. Here's what happened in the case of Lowry versus the LA Community College District. Scott Lowry was employed as a heating and air conditioning technician at Pierce College in Woodland Hills. Lowry experienced sharp pain in his lower back during a two-day project in 2006 that required lifting and prolonged and repetitive squatting. He filed a workers' compensation claim and received benefits from the college. He worked for the next 18 months with varying degrees of accommodation for his inability to lift heavy tools and equipment and to work in difficult positions and locations. Eventually, the employer placed him on disability leave, to which he was entitled under his collective bargaining agreement. In 2007, Dr. Grayheck, the PTP, gave permanent work restrictions of no bending, kneeling, or squatting that causes pain and no lifting over 30 pounds. The district scheduled an interactive meeting to determine if they could make accommodations and if not to evaluate alternative positions. There was conflicting testimony about what work restrictions were discussed at this meeting. The employer said Lowry was provided with a copy of his work restrictions taken from the PTP report and reviewed the job function analysis function by function and did not voice any objections. But Lowry testified that he had told everyone at the meeting that the work restriction information was wrong, that he was doing a lot more than what the restrictions said. The district concluded that it was not reasonably feasible to continue accommodating his restrictions on a permanent basis. Thus, Lowry was removed from his modified duty position at the interactive process meeting and was placed on paid industrial leave for 36 months. Shortly after the interactive process, the PTP responded to a letter sent by the claims administrator indicating that he had removed all the work restrictions that would have required an accommodation. But this information was not sent to the employer until 2009. Nevertheless, the trial court charged the employer with constructive knowledge of this information as of the November 29, 2007 date of the report received by the claims administrator. In 2010, Lowry was advised that his leave was nearing an end and he was offered four options. The first option was to return to work with or without a request for an accommodation. The other three options involved his resignation and or retirement. Lowry did not respond to the employer. Instead, he sued the district and the third-party administrator for damages under FIHA. But the TPA was later dismissed just before trial. The trial court found that Lowry was able to perform the essential functions of his HVAC technician position with or without any reasonable accommodation. Lowry was therefore awarded back pay and non-economic damages totaling nearly $440,000 and reinstatement to his position as an HVAC technician at Pierce College in lieu of front pay. The district appealed and the Court of Appeal in the unpublished case of Lowry versus LA Community College District found that the trial court's decision as to the employer's failure 
to engage in a good faith interactive process was supported. What is significant in this case is that the employer was charged with constructive knowledge of the medical information received by the TPA, even though the TPA did not forward the information to the employer. And now our fraud report. An FBI affidavit used to justify search warrants lays out part of the government's bribery case against California State Senator Ronald Calderon. The affidavit alleges that Senator Ronald Calderon accepted $60,000 in bribes from an undercover FBI agent during an elaborate sting operation. The affidavit also says there was also probable cause to believe that Calderon participated in a separate bribery scheme with Michael Drabeau, the chief executive officer of Pacific Hospital of Long Beach. The lawmaker allegedly accepted $28,000 from Drabeau in exchange for supporting legislation that would delay or limit changes in California's workers' compensation laws. The FBI said it believed Drabeau was involved in a large-scale healthcare fraud, including paying kickbacks to surgeons who performed spinal fusion surgeries in his hospital. The FBI affidavit said that Ron Calderon agreed to limit or kill workers' compensation legislation that would restrict profitable spinal surgeries at the hospital, and in exchange, Drabeau would pay him $28,000 in bribes disguised as payments for a job for Ron Calderon's son, Zachary. The affidavit also notes that Drabeau paid Tom Calderon $10,000 a month as a consultant. Officials claim three comp bills were influenced by Ron Calderon on behalf of Drabeau. An attorney for Drabeau denied the allegations involving his client. No charges have been filed or brought against anyone, and no arrests have yet to be made so far. A former Riverside County Transit Authority employee has been charged with one felony count of false workers' compensation claims following a traffic accident while on the job. 59-year-old Donald Evans, who had worked for RTA for two years, was arrested and released after posting $25,000 bail. He had alleged that he was injured in December 2012 when a car struck the bumper of his Route 16 bus while it was parked at a Riverside bus stop. RTA's immediate assessment of the accident revealed minor scratches to the bumper but otherwise no damage. Evans did not report any pain or discomfort the day of the accident. But the next day, Evans complained about injuries to his head, neck and back, as well as his left ankle and arm as a result of the accident. The RTA then paid nearly $5,000 in medical payments and temporary disability costs, as well as legal fees. On January 11, 2013, the PTP cleared Mr. Evans to resume full-duty work. Then investigators with the DA's office began investigating after receiving allegations of possible insurance fraud. An RTA review of onboard video footage confirmed minimal contact between the vehicle and the bus and no jolting at the time of the impact. None of the passengers aboard the bus complained of any pain. Although Evans claimed that he was standing at the time of the accident to assist a disabled passenger, 
Video footage showed him sitting in his seat. During the investigation, RTA officials noted that Evans underwent a physical examination to renew his commercial driver's license and falsely denied any prior workers' compensation claims. A physician concluded that Evans' alleged injuries were not consistent with the type of accident in which he was involved. If convicted, Evans faces up to four years in jail. This is the second fraud case involving the RTA. Last spring, when an RTA driver was arrested for workers' compensation fraud, it was a driver who was recently receiving RTA disability benefits and who was operating his own limousine service and videotaped driving, handling customer luggage, and lifting bags of ice, tire rims, and cases of water. The owners and supervisors of Alpha Ambulance, a now-defunct Los Angeles-area ambulance transportation company, have pleaded guilty in connection with ambulance fraud scheme. 56-year-old Alex Capri, 32-year-old Alexei Muratov, and 36-year-old Danielle Hartzell Medina pleaded guilty in a federal court in October to conspiracy to commit health care fraud. They face a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison when they are sentenced on February 24th. Capri and Muratov were owners and operators of Alpha, an ambulance transportation company that operated in the greater Los Angeles area and that specialized in non-emergency ambulance transportation services. Medina was employed by Alpha and ultimately supervised the training and education of its employees. Prosecutors say that these individuals knowingly provided non-emergency ambulance transportation services to Medicare beneficiaries whose medical condition at the time did not require those services. Alpha employees were instructed to conceal the Medicare beneficiaries' medical conditions by altering paperwork and creating fraudulent reasons that justified the transportation services. Alpha submitted more than $49 million in claims for ambulance transportation services, and Medicare paid Alpha more than $13 million for those claims, many of which were false and fraudulent. And in medical news, in 2011, U.S. doctors wrote more than 131 million prescriptions for hydrocodone, making it the most prescribed drug in the country. Hydrocodone is found in blockbuster drugs like Vicodin, as well as dozens of other generic formulations. The FDA has long supported a more lax prescribing classification for hydrocodone, which is also backed by professional societies like the American Medical Association. The Controlled Substances Act passed in 1970 put hydrocodone drugs in the Schedule III class, which is subject to fewer controls. Under that classification, a prescription for Vicodin can be refilled five times before the patient has to see a physician again. But now the FDA has become increasingly concerned about the abuse and misuse of opioid products, which have reached epidemic proportions in certain parts of the United States. In a major policy shift, the FDA now says that hydrocodone-containing drugs should be subject to the same restrictions as other narcotic drugs like oxycodone and morphine. If the drug is reclassified to Schedule II, patients will only be able to receive one 90-day prescription similar to drugs like OxyContin. 
The drug could no longer be prescribed by nurses and physician assistants. By early December, FDA plans to submit a formal recommended package to HHS to reclassify hydrocodone combination products into Schedule II. It anticipates that the National Institute on Drug Abuse will concur with the FDA recommendation. This will begin a process that will lead to a final decision by the DEA on the appropriate scheduling of these products. This month, Swiss customs agents seized 1 million fake tablets of anti-anxiety drug Xanax at the Zurich airport. The story was one incident of a growing international problem surrounding fake prescription medications reaching the hands of innocent customers. So one might ask, is there also a problem with fake doctors? Well, back in July 2000, the California Medical Board was given the authority for four investigator positions that established the Operation Safe Medicine Unit, whose sole purpose was to investigate complaints of unlicensed medical activity. The board summarized the performance of the OSM in the 2012 Sunset Review Report to the California Legislature and highlighted some examples of fake doctors uncovered by the unit. The San Jose office investigated an unlicensed individual who was performing hemorrhoid surgery and almost killed a man when his colon was perforated with a prong. In the San Francisco area, an unlicensed individual, 49-year-old Carlos Guzman Garza, performed liposuction in an unsanitary office while smoking a cigar and not wearing gloves. The victim held her own IV bag because there was no assistant. Guzman Garza assumed the identity of a physician assistant who shared a similar name and ran Derma Clinic, a dermatology office on Mission Street in San Francisco. Press coverage spurred additional victims to come forward and prosecutors filed amended charges against him. They included practicing medicine without a license, false impersonation, identity theft, rape, and grand theft. Guzman Garza was charged with over 35 felonies. Now, in the San Jose area, Carrie Silberman, a disbarred attorney, was practicing medicine at Shiny Toes Clinics in San Francisco and San Ramon using a laser to cure toenail fungus. One child's toenails fell off because of the treatment. And Silmerman was convicted of 19 felonies and was sentenced to four years and eight months on charges of practicing medicine without a license. And in the Pleasant Hill office, an unlicensed individual was convicted after injecting an unknown substance into the face of female victims causing permanent disfigurement. In the San Jose area, an unlicensed individual was convicted and is serving seven years in prison for performing facelifts with an X-Acto knife. Other cases investigated by the unit has focused on vendors selling big-eye contact lenses in Los Angeles. The lenses are popular in Asia and make the iris of the eye appear larger, but they can also cause eye damage and other states report similar problems with fake doctors. William Hammond shared millions of dollars in grants and university and hospital posts and bragged of work 
for prestigious medical groups. He duped hospitals, universities, and even the AMA. It turns out Hammond isn't a cardiologist or even a doctor. He had no medical residency, fellowship, doctoral degree, or the 15 years of clinical experience he claimed. He attended medical school for a few years, but withdrew and did not graduate. Ernest Adu stole a physician's identity and pretended to be a doctor for a year in South Carolina. He was hired as a general practitioner and provided the kind of exams patients would receive during a visit to the family doctor. He also worked as a contract doctor for the South Carolina Department of Mental Health, filling in for a doctor on medical leave. An Annapolis woman was accused this year of faking medical licenses and treating pediatric patients. Thus, it would seem to be a prudent claims practice to check and double-check the identity and licensure of unknown treating physicians. The Medical Board of California website allows public access to license information and is a good starting point for your investigation. Other professions, such as chiropractors and psychologists, can similarly have their license status verified online. The FDA is taking two actions to further enhance the agency's ongoing efforts to prevent and resolve drug shortages, a significant public health threat that can delay and in some cases even deny critical care for patients. And now the number of new drug shortages in 2012 was only 117, down from 251 drugs in 2011. The FDA released a strategic plan to improve the agency's response to imminent or existing shortages and for longer-term approaches for addressing the underlying causes of drug shortages. The plan also highlights opportunities for drug manufacturers and others to prevent drug shortages by promoting and sustaining quality manufacturing. The FDA also issued a proposed rule requiring all manufacturers of certain medically important prescription drugs to notify the FDA of a permanent discontinuance or a temporary interruption of manufacturing likely to disrupt their supply. The rule also extends this requirement to manufacturers of medically important biologic products. The FDA director said that the complex issue of drug shortages continues to be a high priority for the FDA and early notification is a critical tool that helps mitigate or prevent looming shortages. Most drug shortages are the result of quality control problems. The agency said it plans to work with manufacturers to fix such problems and encourage them to engage in practices that could avoid or mitigate shortages. But the agency said it cannot require companies to build in extra manufacturing capacity or to guard against shortages or order a company to make a product if it is not profitable. And in regulatory news, the DWC announced a carve-out agreement between seven Southern California United Food and Commercial Workers local unions, Vons, and Super A Foods. The agreement covers an estimated 20,000 workers. These workers increased the total California workforce covered by carve-outs by over 55%. There are a total of 32 active labor management carve-out agreements in California. 11 of them are non-construction carve-out programs. 
Carve-up programs allow employers and unionized workforces to create their own alternatives for workers' compensation benefit delivery and dispute resolution under a collective bargaining agreement. Since 2004, carve-up programs in California have handled over 25,000 injured workers' claims. Eligibility of parties to participate in a program must be approved by the Administrative Director of the DWC. In 2003, SB 863 added the State of California to industries that can establish carve-out programs. Disputes between employers and injured workers over benefits under the carve-out program are generally heard in arbitration or mediation. In 2011, carve-out programs reported resolving 19 claims using litigation, 14 claims were resolved at mediation, one at arbitration, four at the WCAB, and none at the Court of Appeals. The firm of Floyd, Scarron and Kelly is pleased and excited to announce that senior partner John Langevin will be establishing his office in the firm's facility in Long Beach. His relocation in conjunction with managing attorney Chris Lear will augment the management team and facilitate the firm's plans to create and establish the Long Beach office as one of the largest offices in the firm. Concurrently with Mr. Langevin's move, the firm is pleased to announce that Juan Narongo is promoted to managing attorney of the Riverside office and Slayton Muminovic is promoted assistant managing attorney of the Riverside office. Juan has been the assistant managing attorney since June 2013 and has been with the firm since 2005, having joined the firm after several years as a workers' comp attorney. Slayton has been with the firm since 2005 and has demonstrated his ability to manage not only his caseload, but to be a mentor to other associates as they mature with the firm. Please join with us in wishing Juan and Slayton success as they take on the management challenges in Riverside and best wishes to the new Long Beach team as John and Chris implement the firm's growth plans for the Long Beach office. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I am Renee Fols, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.